Matthew chapter 6. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, or if you need a Bible, there should be one somewhere around you in a pew or in a chair. Um, Matthew chapter 6, I think, I didn't look it up this morning, is around page 810 or 811 in that uh, pew Bible. But Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verses 19 to 24. 19 to 24. This is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and this is what the Spirit says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is, that, is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. Father, we come now to your word given to us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit through men whom you chose to write down your words for your people. And we come to you now not only to look at these words, but to ask for your help as we do so. We pray. Holy Spirit, that you will teach us, that you will train us in righteousness, that you will correct us, that you will rebuke us. Lord, we pray that the hymn we just sang will truly be the echo of our hearts, that we'd rather have Jesus. We pray now that you would use your word to confirm that in our hearts, to change our hearts so that it is true. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God both deserves and commands our unswerving loyalty, our undying allegiance. He alone is king. He alone is Lord. He is the only God worthy of our worship. His Son is our only Savior, our only hope. His words are our final authority on life and godliness. His words are sufficient for life and godliness. We need nothing else, so nothing but full devotion to the Lord will do. God deserves it. And God commands it. And actually, we see this throughout the Bible, don't we? We see it all the way back when the law is given. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And that theme keeps coming up over and over again. At the end of Joshua's life, as he is about to die, 
He looks at God's people and says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the problem of putting away gods comes back over and over again, doesn't it? In the book of Judges, this is what is often called the sin cycle in Judges. They, ought, they turn away from the Lord and turn to the gods of other nations and worship them and serve them. So God sends them into captivity, gives them other people over them to rule over them. And then they cry out for a deliverer. And God sends one. And as soon as everything else, everything is okay, do you know what they do? They're like, all right, we can go back to those other gods. Now that everything's okay, we can just worship whoever we want now. But not so. When you come to a place, when you come to a person like Elijah, you remember when he squares off with the 400 prophets of Baal? Do you remember what he told God's people at that moment? He asked them this question. He said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God... Follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In other words, you can't ride the fence, folks. You can't have your Baal and the one true and living God, too. It's one or the other. And then we come to the New Testament and we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. And no surprise, he both deserves and commands absolute loyalty, doesn't he? I mean, he'll go so far as to say something like this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Nothing must surpass loyalty to Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. This isn't next-level Christianity, okay? This isn't like you become a Christian and then at some point you really become devoted to Jesus. No, 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 no. The very definition of what it means to be a Christian is to turn from all these other things and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as Savior but as your supreme Lord. He is the one you're going to follow. He is the one you're going to listen to. He is the one you're going to emulate. He is the one you're going to obey. He is the one. He is the one. Nothing else. After all, Jesus was crucified for us. He shed his blood as the commitment of his love toward us to show us grace, to save us from our sin. And it's hard for us to fathom the depth and breadth of that love, but he calls us to that same kind of commitment back to him, that we would take up our cross. In other words, that our whole lives are in his hands, that to the death we're his. And if death should come, when given the choice between death and abandoning Jesus will gladly take death because Jesus won't abandon us once we walk through death. Jesus deserves and commands 
absolute loyalty. And so it's no surprise when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, which describes for us what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, what it means to be part of his kingdom. It's no surprise that we find a call to such a strong commitment. And the call comes here in this series of two options, right? Treasures in heaven, treasure in heaven, or treasure on earth. A good eye or a bad eye. Serve God or serve money. The paths are laid out for Jesus' disciples and they're laid out before us. And friends, we can only take one. One is the way of following Jesus and the other is not. And actually, this whole duality continues into the next chapter. Do you know that? So that in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, there are two gates. Verses 15 to 20, there are two trees with two different kinds of fruit. Verses 21 to 23, there are two different ways to claim Jesus as Lord. Verses 24 to 27, there are two men who build two houses on two very different foundations. Jesus is basically saying there are two ways to live. There is following me and there is not. And so we need to wrap our minds around the truth that he's driving home, which is that Christians must be fully devoted to Jesus. That seems like such a simple statement, doesn't it? It seems like that should just be a foregone conclusion. But let me ask you, as you look around the world today and you see what people are describing as Christianity, don't you think we need to hear this again? Christians must be fully devoted to Jesus? Not fully devoted to arguing so much. Not fully devoted to fist shaking all the time. Not fully devoted to other issues that can sidetrack you from the gospel. Fully devoted to Jesus. Because, friends, there are issues out there that would gladly sidetrack you, and they'll put the word gospel on that issue to make you think that it's actually the heart of the gospel to do X, Y, or Z, or whatever it is. And certainly there are good things. Certainly there are things that as followers of Jesus we'd want to be part of, that we'd want to give our hearts to and our prayers to and maybe even our time to. But the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised again. The gospel is no societal issue. The gospel is an issue that changes everything. So beware when you're reading a book this week or you're reading an article and it says this is a gospel issue. Be very clear what is a matter of ethics and morality and biblical truth, which are all significant, versus what is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please be clear on that because if you're not, everything will slowly become a gospel issue. Everything will. Everything's a gospel issue. But this is where we begin, isn't it? Christians must be fully devoted to Jesus. Don't you need to hear that today? I need to hear that today. We need to hear that today. And so I'm just going to ask three questions that I think would be implied by the text to help us consider that. The first is, 
Which treasure will you seek? Which treasure will you seek? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you desire the most? What is it that you want out of life? What captures your imagination? What do you... What do you daydream about? What's something that, that if you had that, you'd really be satisfied with your life? Now, people answer that kind of question all manner of ways, don't they? Well, what I'd really like is to be able to own my own business and be my own boss. Oh, yeah, what I would really like is to earn a living without actually working hard. I'd like early retirement. I'd like a house on the lake. I'd like a house on a lot of land where I can really relax. I'd like to get the boat, the car, the RV, the pool, the decked out garage, the remodeled kitchen. I'd just like to have enough money to go wherever I want, whenever I want, or to buy whatever I want. Is that too much to ask? What I'd really like to do is become famous. I'd like for my YouTube channel to take off. I'd like to be famous on TikTok. I'd like to make it to the Olympics or make it into professional sports. If you watch the Olympics carefully, you'll see these, these young men and women, their whole lives have been given to this pursuit. It doesn't mean it is the one thing that if they lost it, they'd be torn apart. But you, that's what you hear over and over again, isn't it? And just before the opening ceremonies or sometime in the last couple of days, it was, talking, it was interviewing parents, you know, because they couldn't go to Beijing to be with their children uh, as they compete. And uh, it was all about like, well, they started when they were two. They started when they were three. They started when they were four. You know, these very, very young kids and their whole lives have been given to it. Well, no, I don't want any of that. I just want to be the valedictorian in my class. I just like to be recognized for my achievements in academics. I'd like to be recognized for my service to others. Well, I'm not all that concerned about that, but I'd really like to look great. I'd like to be in shape. I'd like to get ripped at the gym. You know, I'd like to lose the weight and have everybody ask me, have you lost weight? (laughs) These kinds of goals, and there are just lots of them, aren't there? That people give their lives to. But do you know what they all have in common? They all have an expiration date. None of them actually last. Because as some of us others will tell you, bodies break down. Fame fades. Just pick any person who was in movies when you were a kid and ask your grandchildren if they know who they are. They're not, they don't have a clue unless they've been on YouTube somehow or on TikTok. <laughs> so, remodeled kitchens, you know what happens in a few years? You have to remodel them again. Cars die. Even money loses its ability to satisfy. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And you see, anything you earn and anything you buy and everything you accumulate at the very best lasts until you stop breathing. And at that point, do you know what happens? It is pride out of your cold, dead hand, and it is passed on to somebody else. 
So the writer of Ecclesiastes says again, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. And you know what the conclusion was? It's all vanity. The pursuit of wealth, vanity. The pursuit of wisdom, vanity. The pursuit of fame, vanity. The pursuit of power, vanity. The writer of Ecclesiastes nowhere says, in fact, says the opposite, that we actually ought to enjoy the gifts that God gives us. But they can't satisfy. They're like the steam coming off your coffee this morning. You can reach out and try to grab it, but you'll never get hold of it. That's what trying to find your satisfaction in anything of this world is. So don't pursue it. Don't set your heart on the here and now. Don't devote your life to the things of this world. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, Jesus never tells us to avoid the temporary. He's not telling us to not own a house or having a sa- have a savings account. He's saying don't store it up and hoard it like it is the big treasure in life. Don't be like Smeagol in Lord of the Rings who finds the ring and he's infatuated with it and he's obsessed with it and he becomes consumed by it and it changes everything about him and he just dissolves all his hobbitness, dissolves into this creaturely thing. Don't be like the rich fool in Luke 12 who spent all of his time hiring architects so that he could build bigger and bigger barns to store all his great stuff in it only to discover one day that he had to encounter both death and God and he ended up with nothing because he laid up for himself treasures on earth. Instead, Jesus says... Lay up, store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Make it your life's aim to do the things that truly last for eternity, things that matter, things God will reward you for. Give yourself to heavenly pursuits. Give yourself to your soul. Give yourself to other people and their souls. Look at your house and your money and your car as an opportunity to bless others, to give, to serve, so that rather than filling up your life for you, You're pouring out your life for Jesus and for others. Why? Well, because treasures on earth, you know, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. You've driven, but you've driven the high, you've driven these back roads in Indiana, right? You've driven by the barn that looks like a stiff wind would knock it over, right? It's very like the termites are holding it together by holding hands. That's what they're doing. Do you know that it wasn't built that way? It was built as a big, beautiful, useful thing. And here, time and weather have just corroded it. And that, when next time you drive past it, just think, treasures on earth. Because that's what will happen. As opposed to treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson wrote that heaven, heaven is the only place immune from the ravages of time. 
You want your treasure to last? Don't store it here. Look to there. So which treasure will you seek? Because here's the thing, you can't have both. You can't dabble in them. They're polar opposite directions. You will either lay up for yourself treasures on earth or you will lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And only one of them is worth it. Only one of them is worth your life, your soul, your all. So Jesus describes that later in Matthew 13 when he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And here's my question. I think the question Jesus would ask. If earthly treasures and power and fame and all of it was buried in a field... And the kingdom of heaven was buried in another. Which one are you selling everything to go get? Now, which one would you? Because I know your Sunday school answer. I know my Sunday school answer. What I'm asking is, which one are you selling everything to go get? Which one are you sacrificing for? Which treasure will you seek? The second question that emerges out of here is, which eye do you have? Which eye do you have? Verse 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And I want to tell you, for a long time, when I first became a Christian, I, would, you know, I wanted to read the Bible. And when I would get most excited about it, I'd always start again with either Genesis or Matthew. And I'd get to this place and I'd read these two verses and like steam would come out my ears. And I'd be like, what, what is going on here? And I would just go on. Don't do that. All right? Don't do what I used to do. If, if questions arise as you're reading the Bible, go find the answers. Pray. Ask the Lord to help you. Find a friend, find a trusted teacher, find the answer. But anyway, people ask about, you know, would, would wonder about this. And on a natural level, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, when your eye is good, uh, uh, anatomically, light comes in through the eye so that you can see. You can see what's in front of you. You can walk around much easier if your eye is good. If your eye is bad, you're left in darkness, right? No light gets in. You're walking around having to find a way to get through without seeing. That's the natural sense, but that's not Jesus' point. Jesus didn't shift from spiritual truth to an anatomical lesson. Notice that there are two treasures, heaven, heavenly, earthly, and there are two eyes. So he's drawing... The same kind of contrast. And when you look at the whole of the Bible, you'll often find that the eye is equivalent to the heart. So listen to Psalm 119. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And then the parallel, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Or what about when the writer of Hebrews says, let us run the race with endurance looking to Jesus. That is obviously something that is not meant to involve my actual eyeballs. And Paul speaks of 
the eyes of the heart. Remember when he prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.18? He prayed that they would be having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. I mean, but we talk this way too, don't we? We talk about the eye as if we mean the heart. I've got my eye on that job. Right? Or that old song that you may not be able to get out of your head like I haven't. I only have eyes for you is that what does that mean I mean what does that mean if it doesn't mean the heart that would be weird here's my eyes you know here are my eyes they're for you nobody else or what about I can those of you who maybe are in your senior year of college or high school I can see the finish line We're talking about ambition. We're talking about forward move. We're talking about what we're after here. And that's the kind of way that Jesus uses the eye here. It's imagery for the heart, for devotion. In fact, this phrase that's in um, verse 22, if your eye is healthy. If you have an older version, like a King James version, it says, if thine eye is single. Okay? That's probably a bit better, though it's confusing for us to to know what that means. But the single there means singleness of purpose. If you're single-minded, if your loyalty isn't divided, divided between Jesus and something else, then you'll be full of light. Then you'll actually radiate light. Then you'll be what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14. You'll be the light of the world. But if your eye is bad, then you're in the dark. In fact, he says, if then the light in you is darkness, if you think you have light, and you're walking around in darkness, you know who you're like then? The Pharisees. They thought they saw everything. But they were blind. Blind guides. And the bad eye actually is a Jewish idiom uh, that we find later in Matthew 20. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 20 about laborers going out into the field. And the master who's sending them out, he promises them a certain wage. And then more and more guys join the workforce as the day goes on, right? You remember this parable? And the master promises each group that goes out, hey, I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. Guy comes an hour before closing. I'll pay you what's right. And at the end of the day, the master gives them all the same amount, a denarius, one day's wage. And the folks who got there at sunup are not happy about the folks who clocked in an hour before closing, because they figured they'd get more. So they start complaining. And then the master uh, asked this question in part of his response. Do you begrudge my generosity? In other words, are you so concerned with yourself, with what you'd get, that you're actually angry that I'm generous with these other people? And that phrase, do you begrudge, literally is, is your eye evil. You see, the evil eye looks out for itself. It's the self-focused heart. It's the, it's, it's the heart that's lost in the darkness of pursuing me, myself, and I. And again, you can't have both. You can't be single-mindedly devoted to Jesus and pursue yourself at the same time. 
You can't do it. Because even if your heart's divided, even if sometimes you know it's set on the Lord, sometimes it's set on me, you know what that is? A bad eye. Because it's not singular. It has no singleness of purpose. I want you to imagine a young couple on their wedding day, all right? They come up here, I marry them, and then we go off to the reception. And at the reception, the bride is found flirting with the groomsman. Well, this is not good news, is it? So the groom confronts her. And what she says is, well, you know I'm devoted to you, but I mean, it's only natural. My eye is going to wander. Are you okay with that? So let me ask you, is the, is the groom okay with that? It's not a rhetorical question. You can say it out loud for the people who didn't answer the first time. Is the groom okay with that? No. We stood here and we made vows to one another, vows of total commitment to one another. That's what marriage is. But friends, how much more should we, the bride, be fully devoted to our heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of flirting with the world, flirting with self? Which eye do you have? The eye that's set on Jesus, single purpose, or the eye that only looks out for me? Last question. Which master do you serve? Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friend, who do you answer to? How do you make decisions? Who holds the reins of your life? Whose voice demands your attention and your obedience? Is it God or is it money? Now, immediately we see that it has to be one or the other. Did you notice the ability language here? Look at the ability language. First phrase, no one can serve God and money. It's not, Jesus isn't saying you must not serve God and money. He's saying no one can. And he says the same thing in the last phrase. You cannot serve God and money. It's not so much a prohibition as it is a statement of fact. You can't do it. No one can serve Two masters, you don't have the ability to do it, and I don't either. Uh, Friday was Austin's 20th birthday. And when Austin was born, we lived in an 800-square-foot apartment in Louisville. An apartment in which the stackable washer and dryer in the hallway closet, you had to run the hose into the bathroom sink in order to get the washer to work. So if you were having guests over, you didn't do your laundry because there'd be no privacy in the bathroom because the door wouldn't shut if you were running the washer and dryer. It was a palace. And Austin's bedroom was actually a pack and play in the living room. 
And during that time in our lives, I would get up at 3.30 in the morning and I would go to the Louisville Courier, Courier Journal, the newspaper there, and I would go throw newspapers for a couple hours. I would come home, I'd take about a 30-minute nap, and then I'd go to class all day, and then I'd go straight from class to Chick-fil-A where it was my pleasure to work for the rest of the night. And then I would come home at 8, 8.30, and then I would try to read or study or write, and I would pass out at 10, and I would get up at 3.30 the next morning, and I would just do it all over again. And do you know, in all of that time, the, the, Louisville, the Courier Journal never once was upset that I was also working at Chick-fil-A? And Chick-fil-A didn't care that I was throwing papers in the morning. Because you can work for two employers, but you can't serve two masters. Because the picture here isn't employment, the picture is slavery. And while ownership may transfer from one to the other, there was no shared ownership. The slave was devoted to its master, his master, her master. So, you and I can't actually serve two masters. You can, friend, we, we can dabble in religion all we want, and we can post things about God on Facebook all we want, but let me tell you, and let me tell me, you cannot serve two masters. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other in the end. You can't do it. If you have an older version, it says, it reads, you cannot serve God and mammon. And the word mammon originally meant something that you trust, something that you put confidence in. And one of the main things that we human beings tend to put our trust in is money. We, we trust money to provide the food on our table so we don't ask God for daily bread. We trust money for security in life, so we don't shelter under the wing of the Lord. We trust money to give us lasting happiness, so we don't seek to have our joy in the Lord only. And so in time, because that's how prevalent money is in the realm of what we trust, eventually that mammon, just the idea became wealth or riches or money, and you simply can't serve, can't trust, can't have confidence in, can't bow your knee to Almighty God and the Almighty Dollar. You can't do it. It's one or the other. It's why Paul tells Timothy to teach the people in Ephesus, especially the wealthy. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. But before you wipe your brow and, you know, sigh, that's for wealthy people. Remember two things. In comparison to the rest of the world, you are ridiculously wealthy. But the second thing to remember is that this doesn't actually own, this principle doesn't actually only apply to wealthy people. Wealthy people put their hope in the riches that they have, and poor people feel hopeless without the riches that other people have. It's the same coin. It's just two sides. You cannot serve God and money. 
John Stott says, When the choice is seen for what it is, a choice between creator and creature, between the glorious personal God and a miserable thing called money, between worship and idolatry, it seems inconceivable that anybody could make the wrong choice. Well, friends, it may seem inconceivable, but we are still faced with it. And too many make the wrong choice. So which master will you serve? The Lord Jesus Christ deserves and commands absolute allegiance, undying devotion, unswerving loyalty. You see, if he won't be fully ours then he can't be ours at all. There is no dabbling in following Jesus. There are no part-time Christians. It's all or it's nothing. So which will it be? Treasure in heaven or treasure on earth? A good eye full of light or a bad eye that leaves you in the darkness? Serve God or serve money? Choose this day, friends, whom you will serve. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and we know that left to ourselves we would be fickle at best. We need you to transform and continually work in our hearts so that our eyes are set on Jesus, so that our treasure is in heaven, so that our master is you. God, would you help us to look at our own lives, our own way of living, our treasure, our master. See if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Rebuke and correct us where we have gone wrong. Teach us and train us to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to even consider and meditate on what that word means, Lord. And then to live knowing you as our Lord. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Jesus, who aren't following Jesus, those who dabble in religion, dabble in Christianity, whose Christianity is limited to some part of their lives, but is no Christianity at all. I pray, Lord, you would give them grace, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that they might see their sin. They would see the insufficiency of dabbling in Christianity, of dabbling in religion, of being part-time in following Jesus. They would see it, 
They would turn from it. And they would embrace Jesus Christ alone and follow him. Make us a congregation fully devoted to Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.